You're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show on uh, Resonance FM, and uh, today we'll be talking about Socrates. This is the Philosophy Now radio show. Uh, right, Socrates lived about f- uh, 469 to 399 BC at the height of the Golden Age in Athens, just before they lost the war with Sparta. And in some senses, he can be called the father of Western philosophy, although he called himself a midwife of ideas. To discuss the man and his uh, intellectual legacy, I have with me M.M. McKay from King's College London and Tim Chappell from the Open University. Okay, so starting... Uh, who was Socrates and why is he philosophically important? Do you want to start us off, please, M.M.? So there's a question about whether he was anything much at all. Right. So he disputed that he was a teacher because he thought that there was nothing he could teach because he didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. Um, some people thought he was a, a, a sort of grubby version of a teacher, which would be a sophist. Okay, can we can I go, just go back a bit and say uh what is he known for why are we discussing him so he's known for being the man who asked all the questions he's known for being the man who said i know that i know nothing and he was the teacher of plato um who was himself the teacher of aristotle so he was the beginning of the western the serious beginning of the western uh-huh. philosophical tradition okay Marked, I think, especially by how he thought philosophy should be done. Okay, Tim, anything you want to add on who who was Socrates? I think who was Socrates is a question that we can't get rid of, because Uh one of the things that's striking about him is what an ambiguous figure he is. Uh All the way through his career, no one quite knows what to make of him. One of my favourite works of Plato's is the Symposium, Uh and the picture of Socrates that you get there is absolutely enthralling. Okay, Plato wrote dialogues about Socrates, of which we're going to mention that, I'm, I'm sure soon. So, sorry, carry on. Well, the Symposium, which is Greek for the banquet, the the drinking party. Dinner party. The, the piss-up, if you like. Yeah. It's a wonderful discussion of love, and Socrates' contribution to this is um, amazing. Quite apart from the philosophy he contributes, uh-huh. what I'd want to stress is his personality. And when I say he's ambiguous, okay. I mean a whole load of things. One thing I mean is that he's often associated with these characters whom the Greeks called sophistai, uh-huh. which we translate as sophists. But the word can mean expert, it can uh, mean wise guy, it can mean lots of things in between. And this is ambiguity yeah. about Socrates. Is he a sophist or isn't he? Another ambiguity about him, he's somebody who talks about pure, detached, absolute rationality, separated from history, separated from personality, mm-hmm. separated from accident and contingency. He just wants to focus on rational arguments, he tells us again and again. He wants to go where the rational argument leads and nowhere else, he tells us again and again. And yet, he's one of the most strange and eccentric people you'll ever meet in Okay, so part of the interest for Socrates is his weird personality and part of it is his <laughs> obsession with rationality. I'm sure they're connected together. Uh, okay, uh, M.M., why is he important to you? Why, uh, why is he interesting to you in particular? I think... For the same reasons, I think that the way he thinks philosophy is done is completely captivating. Yeah. Right. You mean it completely captivates you? Completely captivates me. He thinks that what you do when you do philosophy is ask people questions and then see what happens next. And one of the things that... So that's something that's become terribly important. So if you think about how people 
talk about Socratic method. So educational mm-hmm. systems, for example, based on, oh, well, yes, we use the Socratic method. And it seems to me to be a really deep and interesting question why that matters. Why does it matter that we should do it by you? questioning people uh-huh. rather than just by somebody sitting down and spouting stuff, right? So why is, why is asking questions and receiving the answers going to be a good way to do philosophy that's what, what what's the answer to, question. yeah but what's the answer to that question why well, is that the way of doing philosophy so i think the uh, starting point might be this that when you ask a question of the other person that mm-hmm. you're listening to what they're saying right. that's the first thing <laughs> hopefully the sec- well <laughs> the second thing i think is that what it doesn't do is impo- he's not a dogmatist as it seems to me he mm. doesn't a lot of his arguments with people end up saying oh crikey no we thought we knew something about whatever the question is mm. we thought we knew what virtue is or mm-hmm. what what courage is or and now oh crikey we seem not to be able to figure out what on earth it means and one of the questions is whether the that's worth having. Well, there's a word for that, isn't there? There's a proper word for that. Aporia or something, Aporia. isn't that right? Where mm. you get to the idea that you didn't know as much as you thought you knew. Right. And this is this is really sort of uh, uh, symptomatic of the of the Socratic method. I, I wonder if you could tell us a bit more, Tim, about what the Socratic method is. I mean, what did he, he do? This guy who was, like, full of questions, lived in Athens, uh, went around... Say he came up to an, an, an aristocrat in the street, what would he do? He'd probably ask him a series of embarrassing questions uh-huh. uh, that the aristocrat would be completely unable to answer. And the aristocrat would probably get cross with him and say, why are you going on about cobblers? Why are you going on about <laughs> leather workers? Why, why all this stuff about banal, ordinary tasks? Because Socrates uses these very homely examples. Uh-huh. But what he's always doing, as M.M. was saying, what he's always doing is he's trying to get people to use their own minds. Learning isn't something... Uh-huh. We, we talk these days about delivering the curriculum. Curriculums <laughs> aren't something you can deliver, according to Socrates. No. What you do is you sit down with someone and you try together to understand it using your rational powers and those rational powers socrates makes very plain that he thinks those are the same rational powers in any human being so you can you can can reason things out just by asking questions about something you have to ask the right questions yes and i think there are there are more conditions on what the how the questions work so for example just saying well you know, where are we and what are we going to do tomorrow? A series of questions like that are yeah. not going to get you anywhere. They're not philosophy but questions. But you start by thinking, by, for example, I mean, one of the ways he starts is by asking a question about what somebody's doing now and then if they have yeah. a characterised... Well, I'm doing the right Can thing Can you give now. me an example that you might recall from one of his... Uh, so, supposing... So, he meets a character... He meets a... Com- somebody who's a, I think is a complete stinker yeah. whose name is Euthyphro right. and Euthyphro claims to be an expert in religion and he's about to go to court we're at the talking same time. Zeus and Apollo and things that like this sort of at the stuff. moment yeah. and he's about to go to court at the same time that Socrates is going to court and Euthyphro is going to court in order to prosecute his father for the murder of a slave. It's a weird example to the modern ear because Socrates thinks that this is a 
completely extraordinary thing to do because it's his dad right. that he's about to prosecute and uh, and Euthyphro is completely sure that he's doing the right thing and Socrates says Are you sh- so if you know about this stuff that's brilliant mm-hmm. because if you know about it you'll be able to tell me if all you know about what it. the right thing is to do which is if what you know what the, well he doesn't quite put it like that mm-hmm. he he's, he supposes that if you're certain that you're going to do the right thing you must know what sorts of things yeah. constitute the right thing. So you must be able to explain what the right thing is. So if you start like that, then he questions Euthyphro over and over again, not only about whether he knows stuff about piety, about religion and all the matters that mm-hmm. Euthyphro claims to know about, but whether he knows what it would be like to know it. Okay. And the, where it becomes really... What it would be like wonderful. to know what piety is. Exactly. And what, what would it be like to be able to explain to somebody else what religion or virtue or justice is? Mm-hmm. And Socrates' questions focus not only on the immediate answers of the people he's talking mm-hmm. to, but on what kinds of commitments they are about the nature of knowledge, the nature, the nature in particular of things like consistency. So why the question and answer method presses very hard on whether people are consistent. That seems to me to be a fundamental starting point in how we should go about doing talking about philosophy. Not so just you're te- testing people's assumptions, Tim, and the background talking of assumptions the presuppositions and the staging of this discussion right you can't ignore so, those in the euthyphro because you've got euthyphro what are they could you well yes. euthyphro claims to be an expert about holiness right and he's prosecuting his father he's pursuing his father for killing someone else right all this in the name of the greek god zeus yeah who <laughs> overthrew and some versions of the myth killed his, his father, father Cronus, yeah, right. because Cronus had overthrown and on some mm. versions of the myth killed his father uranus so they're saying euthyphro is saying, I know all about what holiness is. And he's saying, when he says holiness, he means Greek holiness. He means this pagan Greek conception yeah. where the gods are so very morally dubious, so very questionable. And he himself seems to be in a rather Zeus like position. In that, uh, to that extent, at any rate, perhaps he does know something about religion. But he thinks that you can get hold of what it is to he be holy. He means Euthyphro. Euthyphro thinks that you can yeah. get hold of what it is to be holy just by inspiration. And yeah. Socrates well, is someone who that, always opposes inspiration, just hitting the right answer right. by a lucky guess or right. by hearing some marvellous voice he out wants, of the sky. He wants Socrates wants belief. reasoning. He wants. So what's what is his mi- Socrates' mission? Talking about sort of religion, Socrates said he had a divine mission to do philosophy. How would that chime in with what's going with? The Euthyphro with the Euthyphro stuff. Yeah. Well, th- there might be two different ways of thinking about that. First of all, he claimed to have a um, a divine sign. And what does that, that mean? To, well, it's a good question. <laughs> it looks as though it only ever stopped him from doing things. So right. it's sort of negative. It's a slightly <laughs> weird. It's a desi- divine stop sign. Out, it's a divine stop sign. Absolutely. <laughs> But it doesn't look as if he suggests that it does anything other than that. Uh-huh. It doesn't look as if it's, uh, as Tim was saying, it doesn't look as if Socrates thinks it's giving him truths. He thinks that you get the 
truths if you ever do get truths by this constant investigation of what it is that you think mm. um and he thinks uh, i think that the extra piece of information that one needs to have is that he thinks that that activity is good in itself he thinks thinking is good in itself thinking yeah. is good in itself so not it's even not th- for what it gets yeah. exactly so one of the things that he repeatedly undermines is the idea oh well actually if i get good at doing this then i'll be even better at being a banker right and then when i'm a banker i'll have pots and pots of money and then i'll be fine that's exactly the opposite of what socrates thinks is the right way to approach it he thinks that getting rash as tim says getting pursuing rationality and being rational right. is the best thing to be why and is all it the other why is it things, the best thing tim? well here's an example Sorry. here's an example <laughs> because um, everybody, I think, has has read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Right. I don't and know if you can still read that. Guess, Everyone yeah. of my age has read that. And the answer drops out of the sky in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and the answer is 42. Right. That's the answer to the question of life, the universe, and everything. Just one problem. We don't know what the question is. Right. We got the answer. Even if you did get the answer by divine inspiration, as Euthyphro claims to do, and as other characters in Plato's dialogues often claim to do, Socrates himself sometimes claims Because all, all the dialogues the are about different questions of what is virtue or love or truth or holiness but even if you've got the right answer you need to know why it's the right answer even if you know the way to larissa to take an example from plato's dialogue the mino um you need to know you need something more than mere true belief about that you need knowledge about that plato says it's no good just being lucky in your guessing you've got to know why the answers are the right answers if you're going to have understanding he's bigging up knowledge he's he's pursuing truth through a, a, a sort of questioning of people on their philosophical fundamentals of yes. their beliefs and, and here's he's another doing ambiguity it. about it uh, here's another ambiguity about socrates he's someone who says it's no good just having the answer right. you've got to have the explanation why that's the answer as well and yet he himself doesn't claim to have that understanding he himself says i know nothing so he but wants- it might be you might d- undermine he might be undermining that thought even further mightn't he by saying well look um it might not even matter whether we've got any answers, just so long as we understand what it would be to have them. So, Or just as long as we understand the limits of our understanding, perhaps. That too, but that would be part of what it would yes. be mm-hmm. to have. So it might be that actually the best life... So Socrates famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Uh-huh. So what's the, what makes the examined life worth living? Okay, what is that then? Well, maybe it's just that. Maybe it's yeah. the thought that... Think, try thinking about it like this. Look, all we've got is what goes on inside our heads. Right. Socrates' thought is that everything that matters to us starts and finishes from there. Yeah. And so it doesn't matter about or cabbages in the marketplace or what you're going to do in court. What matters is what's going on inside your head and anything else that's of value will, as it were, fall out from that rather than being something that we can acquire by by virtue of being rational. It is almost a religious stance, isn't it? This goes back to what I was saying about it. It's like Mm. uh, you, you... the 
path to the good life is to have a knowledgeable mind, knowledgeable soul, would that be right? Well, there's certainly something like contemplation going on a lot of the time. And one of the things that first uh, made me fall in love with Socrates was the the description when I first read it of the scene at the beginning of the symposium, to go back to that dialogue, where everyone's arriving at the party, everyone's showing up. This is Agathon's big party. He's just had the biggest West End hit in years. It's a tremendous party. And all the swish, swell people are there. And Socrates stops in the porch and just stands there because he's got a problem. And nothing matters to him more than sorting out the problem that he's got in his What's head. What's his problem in the symposium? We don't learn, do we? No, we don't. Put we, never learn. Learn. <laughs> we never but he learn. But it's worse than that, isn't it? Because he meets somebody else on the road. Right. And this other guy says, where are you going? Of course, so yes. Socrates says, oh, I'm going to Agathon's. Why don't you come with me? And so he said, the other guy says, well... Uh, but I haven't been invited. Socrates says, oh, it doesn't matter. You can come with me. Then Socrates stops in the street and tells this guy who's gate-crashing the party to go ahead of him and go to the dinner party. I mean, crashing embarrassment. Being a friend of Socrates. Absolute nightmare. (laughs) But contemplation is the most important thing for Socrates. Nothing is more important to him than getting things straight, understanding them. And I think in our world where people are constantly offering you prefabricated Uh solutions, and I'm afraid people do this in philosophy too, Uh and I think they sometimes do it in the name of Socrates, as if Socrates was coming along and just offering us a five-minute fix for our lives. Socrates couldn't couldn't be further from that. Couldn't Mm. be further from that. Because right. mm. it's like he wants you to do the thinking, not to receive his thoughts. Right? Whatever yes. else he is, uh, yes. he is not the take-it-away book of the meaning of life. So, okay. Co- contemplation. Can we just think about contemplation for a minute? Because actually I think it means two different things. Okay, fair enough. So the, there's a kind of <laughs> a Zen version of what contemplation right. might be that I think it isn't. So you might think that what he imagines is that you... I mean, there are some versions of what Plato thought Socrates might have thought that would look like this, that you kind of sit in the sunshine and you... Um, I'm making this gesture with my fingers on my <laughs> first... Yeah, she's doing the same My thumb thing and my now. first finger are kind of making a little loop. Um, and you kind of sit there and you just meditate... I don't think meditation no. is what contemplation is. Not for I, Socrates. I think it's, I think it's thinking. And mm, some of what what's you're the doing difference? Can you're you thinking about thinking. It's filling your mind, not emptying your mind. Right. Um, is that right? Maybe. Uh, maybe. Maybe well, I you know, don't have enough it, of a grip on Zen. He's famous for his dialectic, isn't it? What's, yes. what's the character of Socratic dialectic, as they call it? Question and answer. Sequence. And explanation. Okay. So the three three thoughts. One of them is that it happens with somebody else. And the great thing about doing it with somebody else is that it's not just that you see their point of view, but you see what it is to have a point of view. You see how points of view might be opposed to each other. So you both kind of engaged with the discussion and detach from it. And okay. that gives you a sense of how it's structured. And then it's structured because the questions are in an order. Well, they seem to flow from one they another. They do. Quite, you know, and one. then it's about explanation because the questions are all why questions. 
It's, dialectic is a word that gets taken over by other people and right. Plato first. But the word is just one way you can form an adjective from dialogos, which is the Greek word for a dialogue. Oh, so yeah. it, so it just starts off by meaning conversation. It's a conversation. So, so, so Socrates' uh, philosophy is primarily a conversation between two people yes. involving the answering of questions. What's the sort of... Uh, rationale by which you so- he proceeds from one question to another? <laughs> that is a very good question because often it's quite obscure to right. the reader what's going on and even more obscure to but, Socrates' opponent. But he's always after some sort of really basic definition of whatever uh, the issue in question is. Like in you free throw, it'll be piety, holiness or piety, yeah? Well, there is, yes, there is this chess-playing side to Socrates and I, I think... Mm-hmm. People used the word sophistes of him in the sense of wise guy precisely because he was very, very good at conversational chess right. in the sense that he could run rings around mm-hmm. anybody else. And uh, you know, Have you got an example off the top of your head that you could sort of throw in for, to, well, to illuminate? At the beginning of most of the aporetic yeah. dialogues, the dialogues which start with an aporia or end in, apo- in, in an aporia, there is an example of this. Aporia. An aporia is where you can't see a way forward. You can't find mm-hmm. your way through the argument, yeah. you get stuck. Um, the Theotetus has a nice example. Yeah. Uh, the Mino has a nice example too. In both those cases, what starts at the beginning is that somebody rashly charges in and there's a question what is this virtue it's what is knowledge yeah. in the Mino what is, sorry what is knowledge in the Theotetus what is knowledge, What is virtue in the Mino and somebody charges in with a list of examples right. and one of the most characteristic things that Socrates does is blow holes in anyone who tries to argue just by examples to, tries to establish the reality of something just from examples so I might say virtue is uh, like being kind to strangers, for exactly. instance, or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And then Socrates would say, "Well, what about when you being kind to strangers is giving them some hemlock yeah. or something?" I mean, he comes up with a counter so example. He's, he's to suppose to show you that actually it doesn't apply in so, every case. So he's asking a question of somebody, and then they give an example of the thing that he's asking them about and he says no it can't be that because of this and this so for every example there's yeah. a counter example yeah so uh, does what that we need is how, a do rational beyond, how do you go beyond that how does socrates get beyond you know okay so it's not this and it's not this and it's not this how do you get beyond that to say what knowledge is or what justice is or virtue or love or whatever well you need a rational account and that often means the the greek word is logos that often seems to mean just a definition it's often translated just as a definition i think there's always more to it than that but one of the striking and tantalizing things is that very often definitions of virtues are offered which seem quite good ones and they're rejected for Mm. example in the carmides the virtue of self-control restraint is defined first as um, uh, doing your own thing functioning within your own purlieus and not going beyond them and secondly as self-knowledge and i think both of those are quite illuminating remarks about what self about what temperance is, about what self-control is. But they're both rejected, because they both come from the mouth of Critias, who is someone who is set up in the Carmides as someone we're opposing. And um, in the Republic, of course, we have um, justice defined, again, as doing your own thing, as doing your own work, minding your own business, as you might almost say. But as I say, that definition has already been offered in another dialogue, and there it got blown out of the water. So often it's hard to see why what works in one context won't work in another.
Is and, it? In some of those, in, in some of the dialogues that are often thought to be earlier dialogues, you see that the the, defin- the attempted definitions almost always come to grief and sometimes leave nothing remaining. But they do leave remaining still the understanding... We're talking here about dialogues that are written pieces, pieces written by Plato. Right. And they, they often uh, leave the reader with the thought, well, crikey, you know, what was the point... Why have we got another one of these dialogues? We've read six of the wretched things. Why do we need another to Uh know? But actually, on each occasion, the Euthyphro is one of the best examples where you see what it would be... I'm going back to the same point I made before, that there's a careful account about what, what a proper explanation, a proper answer would look like. It doesn't give you the proper answer, but it tells you what the conditions for a proper that's answer a, would that's be. That's a progress, isn't it? Yes. And I think we're going to move to the track now. This is going to be uh, talking heads and cross-eyed and painless, and then, then we're going to go into um, what Socrates himself believed. Okay? Push the back in front of me. 
Hello, I'm Grant Bartley. You're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show on Resonance. Uh, we're talking about Socrates, or Socrates, as he was known by Bill and Ted. Uh, <laughs> we, we've talked a bit about his method. I have with me M.M. McKay from King's College London and Tim Chappell from Open University. And I, I just want to get into some of his uh, ideas now. We talked about, a bit about his method. Um, well, first of all, I think we need to clear up that uh, everything we know about Socrates is due to what was written down to him by his, some of his contemporaries, uh, most notably Plato, about whose dialogues we've been talking. Um, what's first of all? Like, I guess the question needs to come out: What is the relationship between uh, Socrates and Plato? Uh, what are the differences and the connections between their philosophies? That's hard. Yes. So Socrates didn't write anything, right? And the most interesting philosophical material is what Plato represents to us. Plato's dialogues, most of Plato's dialogues have Socrates as the main right. character. Not all of them, but most of them. Um, and it's difficult to... T- right, so supposing you thought about this in terms of Shakespeare, right? right. So supposing Hamlet, we were worrying about who, what Shakespeare believed and what Hamlet believed. There are two questions right. that you might ask yourself. One of them is whether... Hamlet, what we might think Hamlet believes are the same things as what we might think Shakespeare believes. And the other is whether we can actually talk about what Hamlet believes at all, like whether we can talk about how many children Lady Macbeth had, because Socrates in Plato is a fictional character. But he's a real character. It's like it's more of a caricature of somebody. Well, the problem is that we have other testimonia to Socrates, but in a sense they're more unsettling than it would be if we didn't have them. Why? Because there's this danger that everybody who writes about Socrates remakes him in his own image. Mm. Xenophon is a tedious old windbag. You read Xenophon and it turns out that Socrates was a tedious old windbag. Can't you use them to cancel (laughs) each other out and find out the the residue of what you've got left afterwards? lots of efforts has gone in that direction. Um, I think the problem's a difficult one. Part of the problem is that if you took the library, the British library, and burnt nine-tenths of it, and then took the remaining and burnt another nine-tenths of it, then the 1% that you'd be left with would be something like, probably more than the proportion we have of Greek literature at the time. We know that Plato wasn't the first person to write Socratic dialogues. We know that other people were doing it before Plato. We know that Xenophon was probably taking notes, um, if I remember rightly well, Socrates was talking. We know that Aristophanes, who is earlier than any of these people... He's a playwright. The Aristophanes, the the comic playwright, the, well, I don't know to call him the Tom Stoppard of his day, perhaps he was the... uh, Perhaps he was a bit ruder than that. Perhaps yeah. he was the, the Roy Chubby Brown in his day. <laughs> but in any, at any rate, Aristophanes has these wonderful portraits of Socrates, which are clearly very, very different from anything our other uh, sources say about Socrates. So which of them to believe, and what do they have in common? I mean, one notable thing about Aristophanes, Aristophanes clearly thinks that Socrates is a sophist, and uh-huh. that he's perverted mm-hmm. tragedy. He's spoilt tragedy by getting into Euripides' mind. I think, yeah, there is some complaints, I think, that some... I've also heard elsewhere that he was... I think in our, in the play he's represented as somebody who's just making up these weird arguments that don't really mean anything. That's I mean, in the clouds, worse, yes. yes in the how clouds. how mm. far do you think this these sort of accusations are valid? Well, it's one of the issues that turns up in the speech that Plato puts in Socrates' mouth, the mm-hmm. Apology of Socrates, 
is whether Socrates was one of these characters who made the worst argument. The worse arguments, the better. That's a sophist. And that's the characterization that was often given of the sophist. So somehow or other that Socrates is playing... So let me just stop you. For for the audience, the sophists were um, basically a a bunch... A school in Greek thought or Greek philosophy which... Specialised in making, uh, teaching people how to win in arguments, whether or not the argument was good. So that's where we get the word sophistry mm. from. And the accusation that we're considering is whether uh, Socrates it's was whether one Socrates of these. Socrates was one. And the, one of the worries about the sophists was exactly that they, it didn't matter to them what arguments they used, just so long as they won. Yeah. And the argument. Well, the, that was the, the accusation. I'm not sure that's fair. Well, I, I'm not sure it's example. fair. I'm not sure it's fair either. And I think. Well, what do you guys think? I mean, regarding of regardless of what other people think, what do you think? Do you think Socrates was a good arguer or a bad arguer, or a bit of a sophist? Well, there's a wonderful bit in Jonathan Barnes where he says, talking about Plato <laughs> in the introduction to the Cambridge Companion to Aristotle, most of Plato's arguments are bad and evidently bad, and. Um, most of his views are false and evidently false, <laughs> which is harsh words from Jonathan Barnes. It is. I have to say that there's this thing that happens when you're studying characters in the history of philosophy. If they're interesting enough, you don't care whether their views are true or false sometimes. You just find the views too interesting uh, yeah. for you to bother about that question initially. You get to that question later, but first off, you just want to understand the view. Yeah. But why I think did, why Socrates, did they think that? Yeah. Why did they think that? How you did want, they that's arrive you at that sort of thing? But I, I think in the case of both Plato and Socrates, some of the things that they thought, um, despite what Jonathan Barnes says, were self-evidently true uh-huh. and self-evidently of the greatest importance. Okay, mm. so mm. Give, what, like what? Well, in the case of Socrates, I think that the, the, the one thing that he says above all that I think is true right. is this line that M.M. was quoting before, that an unexamined life is not worth living. Well, I think what's your take on that then? I think what it means is that um, you are not going to have a good life if you don't think out who you really are and what really matters uh-huh. and what you really care about and what the purpose of life sure. is or what you're going to make it. Unless you start with those questions. If you start with questions like, how can I make a million a year? Mm. Who can I impress? What's the quick way to the top? What are people thinking about me now? What's on the telly? You're not going to have a good so life. So you're basically agreeing with him that to do philosophy is a good thing, right? Or to do self uh, self uh, uh, reflecting philosophy is I'd want to go wider than philosophy and say yeah. reflection uh-huh. and careful thought okay um, and and indeed contemplation but yes philosophy is focal to that okay but apart, apart from that attitude what did Socrates himself centrally believe philosophically speaking what were his major ideas Amen. well it, the, again this so go back to the question about how Socrates is presented to us yeah. it's quite difficult to answer that question right. he clearly believed that philosophy mattered. Right. He believed that the unexamined life is, wor- is, is not worth living. He believed that dying is preferable to giving up philosophy. Right. Maybe he believed some other rather more grand things. So it might be that he believed some of the things that Plato seems to have believed, such as um, um, that uh, we might be able to understand... Uh, rationality or the or knowledge by thinking that the mind comes with some ideas already in it yeah, recollection. so plato's theory of recollection might be socratic it might not be um 
it may it looks as though he had some fairly radical ideas about virtue and value okay yeah so he the, there is um, there's a thing that used to be known, I think no longer is, as the Socratic paradox, mm-hmm. which is the paradox that says that no one does wrong willingly. Oh, a crazy idea. So yeah, right, so the idea is in behind that is, uh-huh. look, if you know what the best thing to do is, you're never going to not do that. If you really know what the best thing to do is, the only reason we do the worst thing or the wrong things is because we have really got our heads in a paper bag and we don't know what on earth we're doing. If you really, really know what you're doing, then you will see that this course of action rather than that one is the best one. But why would he think that knowing something is is in in itself a motivation to do something? Uh, It's not the knowing. Right. Is it? I mean, I think you, it's the knowing that it's the best thing. So his argument is a challenge. Right. So show us that really knowing, really understanding that this course of action <laughs> is the best course of action, show me that you would, give given me an, that. Give me an example, please. Well, um, um, in the discussions about that, um, a lot of the time people come up with bad examples about addiction. Mm-hmm. But let, let me give you a chocolate cake example. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. supposing over there there's a piece of chocolate cake mm-hmm. and supposing I go, oh, yum, chocolate cake. And because it's chocolate cake, I go and grab it. Socrates' argument would be, well, maybe the chocolate cake's really bad for me. Mm-hmm. If I really understood that it was bad for me, I wouldn't eat it. So the only reason I'm eating it is because I've made that kind of mistake. Well, so the argument is that value, is, va- value drives us mm-hmm. and that if we know where the values are, then the values will transparently drive us that way. Okay. The only way you can counter that, I think, is to have either a view that we're somehow or other have got um, composite psyches, which Socrates' argument seems not to require, um, or to suppose that value is conflicted. Okay. I think this is precisely where we get some differences emerging between Socrates and Plato that we were talking about uh-huh. before, because mm-hmm. what happens is that it's not possible to be driven hither and thither by your desires or your fears or whatever, unless you're split up, unless you're divided. Mm-hmm. If you're a unified centre mm-hmm. of valuing and of agency, if that is to say you're a person then you will know what you want and you will follow what you truly want because you will have it sorted. It's the people who aren't, who in a sense are not people because they haven't sorted this out is their values. What, this is Socrates' view you're saying? I'm mm. saying that this is a view which becomes clearest in Plato's Republic. Okay. Whether it's Socrates' view right. or Plato's, I'm not sure. Okay. My own view, and this is very controversial, but my own view is that this is implicit in Socrates but spelled out in Plato. So in order to have your head screwed on properly, in order to be someone of whom it's true that you always pursue 
what you really want. You have to know what you really want. Uh You have to be organised around that goal. And that takes some doing. And I personally think, I I think that MM disagrees with Mm -hmm. with this, but I think that one of the differences between Socrates and Plato is that Socrates tends to think that it's easy to get to the state where you're organised around the right value. And Plato thinks it's really difficult. Mm -hmm. And I'm with Plato on that. I don't... uh, Right, so I don't think that I think that Socrates thinks it's really difficult but I think he thinks that if we meet the condition of knowing then it's good if I meet the condition of knowing exactly what's best for me then it's completely bonkers to think I would do other than pursue it and I think there's a great deal to be said for that. If that's really a very idealistic case. Oh, sure. But then that might be one of the crucial things about how he puts it, that it, it isn't a kind of uh, common or garden knowing, oh, well, I know yeah. over there's the chocolate cake. That's, it's not that level of knowledge. It's really a really high condition of knowledge such that if I met it, it would be inconceivable that I would do the other thing. Your mind is full of this idea of what, you're, what is good for you, and it's so full of this knowledge that you can't even think about doing something Well, you else. don't. It's not that you can't. I don't think he's committed to the idea that you can't. It's not deterministic. So what is good for you in Socrates' view? <laughs> um, probably psychic health. Uh-huh. And how do you get that? Knowing. Doing philosophy. So it's, You do it, philosophy and then you know stuff. So there is, a, there is an ulterior motive to doing philosophy. It's not just that it's good in itself. It's also no. good for your soul sort of thing. But good in, that's all there is for it to be good in yourself, isn't it? <laughs> if that's all there is to be well, in you... Well, yeah, a healthy body as well, I would have thought. I don't think he cares about that. No. You think he about what he was like? Uh-huh. He doesn't care about the body. And no. this, this is where I disagree with both Socrates and Plato, yeah. and I'm more inclined to something like Aristotle's line. I think the problem of Acrasia, the, pro- the chocolate cake problem... Ac- that Acrasia being the weakness of the will Being the weakness of the will, being when you do what you know you shouldn't. The, the problem there is that so many of us, so much of the time, are barely persons at all. We're just bags full of hissing snakes and tigers and various other yeah, beasts, which are dragging us in all yeah. kinds of different directions. We're, we're human cells, if you like, um, in our bad well, condition. Uh, please explain We're confused. That. We're confused. Yeah. We're, we're just different desires going in different directions in the kind of way that David Hume described. Now, to get out of that, to become an organised and coordinated system of... Uh, coherent valuing Mm -hmm. is very very difficult but one thing that i'm pretty sure you can't do if that's going to happen is leave out the body because bodily is what we are and bodily ness is essential to what we are and on this i think both socrates and plato by pointing us away from the body and um socrates quotes the greek proverb in in the phaedo in plato's dialogue the phaedo socrates says the body is a tomb soma sema and that seems to me to be deeply misleading we need to do more with the body than just reject it. And I think both Socrates and Plato fall down on that point, and Aristotle does much better. OK, and what, what do you think... To put it in that peculiarly condescending way. <laughs> how would you, as a sort of representative of Socrates, mm. how would you think you'd best respond to that critique? I think... I think it's not strictly true. I mean, it seems to me that there are two ways you can understand what's going on with this stuff about knowledge and virtue and so you could think oh well that what he is is a kind of separatist yeah okay 
So he says, oh, well, I'm not going to have anything to do with anything. This goes back to the question about contemplation. I'm going to just live inside my head. That doesn't seem to me to be true to any of this material. It doesn't seem to me to be true of Socrates that he thinks that it doesn't matter that he's got friends. What he thinks is that nothing can matter properly unless you have the knowledge and the virtue that is the source of value. It doesn't follow from that that nothing else is valuable. Sure, he just got a different priority, perhaps. Well, no, I think there's more... I think it's stronger than that. I think the argument is that nothing can be good for you unless you are good. Okay. Right? It's not that being good yourself is the top best thing to be. And being good is being philosophical, right? Yes, or being rational or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. But it is that the structure of value is completely different from the way that we commonly understand it. Nothing will be good for you unless you are good. Okay, well, that seems like a fair fair response. What about this? I mean, people would have heard of this allegory of the cave. Is it one of Plato's (laughs) or one of Socrates? Well, it's one of Plato's. It, it comes in um, book six or seven, and I can't now remember which. Seven. Of the Republic. Book seven. It comes in book seven of the Republic. Yeah. And what you have is a picture of a society where everybody spends their time um, in a dark cave where they're watching images being projected onto a wall. Right. And what they do is they compete with each Sounds other. Sounds like modern life to it, me. Well, yes, quite. (laughs) What they do is they compete with each other in guessing which images are going to come up next, given the images that have come before. And it's a kind of National Lottery Live experience that they're having. And it's a wonderful game of guessing what comes next. And the trouble is that all of this is illusion, because the only light they have down there is a fire which is behind them, and there are puppets on a wall being being used to create the shadows that they're looking at on the wall in front of them. And there's there's a wonderful... um, engraving by Peter Senodam, which I think is in the National Gallery and certainly is on Google, um, of just this scene. And what Plato tells us in The Republic is that we need to get out of that situation of imprisonment, because that's what it is. That's a metaphor for life, is that we're looking at puppets dancing on a wall thrown by shadows. Yes, and the way this metaphor, this this allegory is interpreted is very various. Some people say that Plato's talking here about the whole physical mm-hmm. world, and that what you need to do in ascending out of the cave, which is what Plato tells us we have to do, is get away from the body completely. And you ascend up into the world where you're in a, a beautiful field with the sun shining down on you, and suddenly you're in the real world. You're no longer looking at illusions. Right. You're looking at things in the light of the sun, not the light of the fire in the cave. And in the light of the sun, you see all the beautiful world around you, and eventually you look at the sun itself. And whereas before you were just watching Hollywood projections of some sort, illusions, um, which perhaps are illustrations of what's up there in the real world, now you're looking at the real world. And exactly how this picture is supposed to instruct us is... um, A a question on which scholars divide. To me, it seems that he is talking about the life of the mind. He's talking about getting beyond the physical world to something mental or spiritual. Okay. There are two oddities, though. Um, The first one is that when the chaps are sitting, when the prisoners are sitting facing the wall, he says that the first thing that we should notice about it 
is that the only thing they see of themselves is the shadow in front of them. What happens to the chap who gets released is that he climbs up, goes outside the cave, and then he comes back down again. Mm -hmm. And when he comes back down again, he sees, as it were, himself imprisoned mm. and is able to pity his former self compared to the life that he lives in now. Now, as he comes back down again, it's true that he's blinded by the dark, just as he was blinded by the light when he went up. But after that, he comes, he becomes able to see, he should be helping everybody else and helping to rule the state. The crucial thing about it, it seem, as it seems to me, is that, once again, that needn't be a separatist story. Right. It might be a story about, actually, how we... Our how we complete ourselves and then integrate ourselves. So it's like how we can become whole by doing philosophy. I, I mean, we've only got a we've only got a few minutes left. So um, talking about Socrates' specific views, just to sort of bring things. What did he think? Love, goodness, justice, truth, beauty. What did he think these things were? I mean, he's, he goes through all these dialogues, asking these people these questions. What is justice? What is blah? What sort of conclusions did he come to the end? Or that, were they all negative in the sense of we really don't know what justice is or what love is? Or, but did he have any positive views and what were they? A lot, of the time, a lot of the time his conclusions are that there are things here that we don't understand. Right. And... Uh, you know, you want to go beyond that into some mm. sort of positive thing, though, don't you? What he gives us is a method for exploring right, the difficulties okay. that we have about them. And part of what I don't think one should miss in all this is that there's a sense in which we all know all along what we're talking about when we talk about love or beauty or justice, for uh -huh. example. I think it can be said that we know about these things from our experience, from our from the examples of them around us that we see. So what Socrates wants us to do, what perhaps Plato wants us to do, is to learn to separate out from the base material in which they occur the instances of beauty that come to us right. in life. So beauty is something that only comes to you in so flashes. So you know what's, when something's beautiful because you see it and you think, oh, that's beautiful, but yes. you might not be able to dis define what the word means. And it's not going to be what beauty is really that's not going it's going to be beautiful right but that's not going to be the thing itself isn't going to be is. beauty exactly it's only and going to be an example it's going to be an example of beauty but socrates but it wants really to go be beyond that to exactly get from the instances to the exactly. to the universal is that the word we'd use you you learn to see beauty in all sorts of different places right. you learn to see different kinds of beauty perhaps but we, you start with we already physical. know how to you use ascend the word a kind of ladder then, so but if we already know how to use the word but we don't know what it means, then uh, isn't that a bit of a contradiction or I, a paradox? Well, I think that's a question that can be raised for Socrates and for Plato. Yeah. How is it that we talk at all? How is it that we understand each other at all? But, we, uh, but the argument isn't... I mean, it's, OK, so there's a problem here about definition. This is a, a, a worry that used to be called a Socratic fallacy. Is it that what Socrates is denying is that we can ever identify anything as an instance of a definition when we don't have the definition conversely is it that we can ever reach a definition if we don't have Already. the ability to identify the cases right. and actually it doesn't seem to me that he's committed to that kind right. of skepticism okay. he's he thinks that there are examples and he thinks perfectly well that we can 
figure out what the examples are. I can look at a picture and say that it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. But I can't then say, ah, that's what beauty is. And whenever I want to think about another instance of beauty, I can't use the picture that I started out with as some way of coming to understand it. So it's the contrast between the instances and the understanding that's crucial to him. So he's wrong about his method of doing philosophy. We've got three minutes. I don't think he's wrong. I, I think that he is trying something that's never been tried before in the history of philosophy, and I think that he gets further than anyone has got before him. OK. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, uh, um, he was executed, and uh, maybe I should end by saying that. Uh, why, why was he executed? Uh, and because why he annoyed he, so many finally, people. Why will he always have an important place in, in Western culture? There's two biggies to end with on a minute each, please. <laughs> he was executed, as Tim says, because he uh, annoyed everybody. He was, I think he frightened people. Uh-huh. Um, he By made asking these people yeah. anxious and insecure. He may have been a scapegoat, scapegoat for the all tyrants. sorts of other disasters that he was somehow or other associated mm-hmm. with. Um, sometimes people treat him as if he's um, a martyr or a sort of messianic figure. I think that's a great disservice to the most extraordinary philosopher there's ever been. Okay. Uh, why was he executed, Tim? He was executed because he refused to run away. Okay. Um, why, why did he do that? He got refu- one minute. Well, I'd, I'd rather answer the other question, if, on, if you don't on, mind. Why, why is he someone who's always going to be important for philosophy? Oh, right, in a minute. Because he is someone who is, as I said at the beginning, that ambiguous combination uh-huh. of a uniquely interesting and peculiar character with this demand for pure and absolutely general rationality. And I think that's the predicament that we're all in when we do philosophy. We're all of us trying to get away from our own eccentricities into something we call pure reason, and yet at the same time prizing those eccentricities. Okay, that's a great place to end. We're going to have about five bars of Black Sabbath, I think, and then we're going to go to the next programme. I'm Grant Bartley, Philosophy Now Radio. Goodbye.